0: this has been an absolutely amazing trip Um, I said, someone said, what's it like being back and I said, it's like putting on an old pair of slippers which might sound insulting, you know like you guys are the old pair of slippers but I just love
1: Australia
0: and I just I feel like I've come home to a bunch of weirdos who understand my sense of humour, you know and it's really quite lovely and I had such a great time with my folks great time in Adelaide and I was born in Sydney, actually. Did you know that? No, I did. I was born in Ride Hospital. <laughs> and uh, my dad was in the Navy. We went back to South Australia, grew up there. So this is, this is... The last time I was in Sydney, I was 12, I think. So wow.
1: how has your experience been? Oh, it's been awesome. I got to uh, see a koala up close. That was awesome. Got to hand feed some kangaroos. Had some good Lebanese food while I was here. So, But... but I, um, I learned on my last trip uh, to Australia, the, the real secret of eating with Lebanese family. Don't sit next to the mom, okay? <laughs> she will feed you till you explode. And I remember being over in the Holy Land and uh, I was eating it with, a, with a family over there and I sat next to the mom and she just kept piling it on, piling it on. It got to the point where I, I just couldn't take it. And I'm like, I, I really can't, I can't fit that in. And she said, fold it in half. And I said, it's the same amount of food. If you fold it, she's like, eat, eat, eat. Uh, so, yeah, no, but it, it's been awesome. I've had a blessed time here.
0: You have an amazing level of stamina, right? I got here nine days ago. I'm still bloody tired. <laughs> you got
1: here yesterday on a plane. And how many talks have you given? Well, I guess we technically had four yesterday. Uh, I think this would be kind of the fifth kind of thing today. And then it's we've amazing. got two more tomorrow on the plane and then home. So. Whereas yesterday, I'm like, Charbel. I'm really going to need a break. <laughs> and you're nonstop. <laughs> it's very impressive. Have you always been like that? Um, yeah, because when I my travel on the road, we try to condense all the presentations to get to as many kids as possible. So we'll typically do three, four, five assemblies a day. I remember coming to one school and I was just getting started, and uh, we did eight presentations in one school because they didn't want to have separate assemblies. So they wanted me to get all the students eight classes in a row. And, and so I just kind of got used to being able to say, hey, I'm just going to go full tilt on this and give everything I got. And, then, uh, and so in that way, it affords me the opportunity to reach as many teens and still get home with the family, instead of kind of stretching it out or doing fewer presentations, so. What's the of- most awkward thing that's happened while you gave a presentation? <laughs> oh, where to begin? Um, I had a school catch on fire once during a talk. I, um, I've had multiple- whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, stop.
1: What happened? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Doing an assembly there's probably one thousand four hundred eighth graders in the auditorium and this woman just walks right down the middle aisle where I'm on stage in the middle of the talk, she says, Come here. I'm like, Can I help you? She said The school's on fire right now! <laughs> Michael, run for your lives! You no, know, I, uh, I said, kids, we're gonna have a little recess right now. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that one was kind of weird. I've had uh, multiple kids pass out during the assembly, uh, typically during the STD part of the talk, which is kind of funny <laughs> enough. But uh, uh, that, that happened multiple times. I've. Um, I remember, I've had student, I remember two girls in a public high school broke out in a fist fight in the middle of the assembly, and I had to kind of jump in and break that. But I think one of my favorite ones is, um, I bring a volunteer up on stage, a high school boy, Try to pick a, a big guy, and I picked this guy, and there's like 400, 600 high school boys, and he raised them, I'm like, yeah, come on up. He comes up on stage, and he's a big kid. I'm like, oh, what's your name? He said, Potato. <laughs> oh, uh, and uh, as we're speaking, I can hear the metal underneath the stage starting to bend and creak under the weight of this boy. And sure enough, within a few moments, the entire stage collapses no. under both of us. No. We jump off the stage. The podium falls down. The bottle of water, the notes, the mic—everything smashes—and the you know 600 high school boys went ballistic. <laughs> they were like chimpanzees in a Super Bowl commercial. Like ah, they just went nuts and. Finally, all the dust settled. I'm like, they feed you good here, don't they? And he's like, yeah, they do. And, you know, so just finish the whole rest of the assembly on the floor. So. Oh, okay, so you had a yeah. broken stage behind you and yeah. you were in front of it. Yeah, it was a good icebreaker. It was
0: really... You know, it's funny. I, I've been doing this for a long time, but I don't have good stories like you. Yeah, My wife's like that. Like, we'll have the same experience. Oh, I got one story. We'll have the same experience, and as she's recounting it, she's got, like, a Hollywood way of viewing the world. It's not that she's being, inc- or like, untruthful. It's just, I don't... Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, she's no, like, I'm...
0: relays reality in a much more exciting way. Here's the exciting thing that happened. Um, it wasn't really awkward, but my wife and I were driving through Nashville after a speaking engagement, and we took all of our kids with us, and we had stopped at this coffee shop. It was like a coffee shop. Well, it's like a I know it was, well, gas station, but it was good coffee. I know gas station coffee sounds terrible, but... And the fella was helping us out, and he brought us the coffee, and we, he saw that we had four kids. You've probably heard me tell you this. He said, uh, "Geez, don't you guys have a TV?
1: <laughs> oh, boy. And I hard.
0: said, If you think uh, TV's better than sex, you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> And I was so happy because most of my life involves me thinking three hours later what would have been a great thing to say. Yeah. Perfect timing. But you have eight kids.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well done. Eight kiddos. Blessed. No. <laughs> Nothing better. It's like, what, what kind of comments do you get? It's like owning a restaurant where your customers never leave, you know? But, uh... <laughs> I mean, but there's nothing better. I mean, we're spoiled so rotten, you know, and, and people look at us like, like they pity us. You know, like, what are you thinking? Like, I remember my, Kristalina was once at a grocery store, and she had, like, probably four of the kids with her, and was was this, you know, grocery cart overflowing, and two women right behind her said out loud, right in front of her, why would any woman ever want to do that to themselves? meaning like you're inflicting punishment by giving life to others inflicting that punishment on yourself and you just you just have to look at them with the, just pity and love you know so i mean yeah yeah we hear the comments you know That's you get that spirit stuff. of
0: the world we were talking about
1: yeah you know but i just feel sorry for them because i mean the, my, the children the church teaches are the supreme gift of marriage It's almost like, imagine you get married and you get to the reception, there's all your presents there. Then there's one present like the size of a refrigerator. Imagine seeing that and being like, oh, well, we'll open that up in like five years when we know each other better. It's like, no, 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 you'd go for that one first. It's the supreme gift. And people say, well, we don't want to have kids until we, like, we want to get to know each other better, then we'll have kids. I'm like, oh, have kids You'll get to know each other real good. So,
0: (laughs) My new advice for young people, and I'm saying it unironically, is... Get married before you're ready and then have more kids than you can afford
1: yeah, you know and 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 God knows what you can uh, Mentally afford yeah, that doesn't
0: mean don't discern. It's just that we often hide behind the word discernment Yeah, because no one can argue with you. You know I'm discerning all that sounds holy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) you know and you know, people tell me, like, oh, how do you afford all these kids? Like, But you become more productive when you have kids. You invest more wisely. You, you earn. You work harder. You, I mean, you spend differently. And ultimately, God's the Father, and He's never going to leave His children unprovided for. And there's, so there's never been a day the lights have not been on, the food hasn't been on the table. Yep. You, you trust the Father. Thank you. All right. So I cannot
0: see the timer. You need to know that. So from now on, you need to let me know. But well, I am so honored because I've heard great things about this very good Archbishop. Archbishop Anthony Fisher is going to join us yeah. on set. Yeah. And we have to meet you today. It's great to be with you. Why is everyone laughing? <laughs> oh, there's the, there's the timer. Oh, you're ten <laughs> Where did you grow up? Here in Sydney. Okay. And when did you join the priesthood? How old were you? So
2: I entered the Dominicans when I was nearly 25. Uh, I was ordained in 1991 as a priest. I was ordained as a bishop 20 years ago.
0: And if somebody had told you when you joined the seminary that you'd one day be the Archbishop of Sydney, I would have run away. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they didn't ask. I tell you that then. I had got, I got a couple of questions. You were just over in Rome. Could you please help me understand what the word synod means, okay. and what was the synod of synodality
1: like?
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Careful, careful. <laughs> yeah. Matt, Matt likes to ease into the interviews. So.
2: Someone asked me if sin-nod, that the word sin was in there deliberately. Uh, no, it's S-Y-N, sin as in with. Uh, it's an odos means uh, with someone on the road, on the way. So the idea is that we're together going together somewhere like the two disciples on the road with Jesus on the way to Emmaus. Uh, The synodality idea is that we should think of ourselves as a pilgrim people all together with Christ on the way to heaven uh, and that that means that we should be constantly listening to each other and above all to him through listening to each other. Supporting each other, getting each other on the way to heaven, so on the way to God. That's how I understand synodality. Historically, synods were normally gatherings of bishops in particular. Uh, Sometimes they had lay advisors, theologians and others to advise them, but principally they have been meetings of bishops. But this recent one was different in that a number of the full members of the synod were lay people.
0: Right. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of controversy around the synod. I, I hear that, that, you know, people are trying to push for m- women priests, maybe that the church changes teaching on certain sexual acts. I don't know how much you can say, but was that prevalent at the synod? Was that a hot topic among the people you were chatting with or? Look, I think the, the, the,
2: the topics that were raised were pretty clear in the instrumentum laboris that was made po- public before the meeting, and we did follow that. so so you can guess what topics got some discussion. Uh, but interestingly, the Pope kept saying before the meeting, during the meeting and since the meeting, Catholic teaching is not going to change on things like the ordination of women, uh, like the, the, the purpose of sex being marriage and, and the procreation of children. Uh, that celibacy is a great gift in the church and he's not going to be, he said he'd rather die than be the pope that stopped celibacy uh, for the priesthood. So I think despite those who want to use synodality for various causes uh, of the age, the pope himself made it very clear that that's not what it's about and not what he's looking for.
0: And I was heartened to see that he actually rebuked the German bishops recently. Um, maybe people don't know about that. Would you share? With so them?
2: that in Germany they have been pursuing a, a so-called synodal way, where they've had a series of assemblies involving uh, lay associations as well as bishops, and it's they have called for complete change of Catholic sexual teaching, uh, a change of the church order, of a lot of the the things we the ways we celebrate the sacraments and more. Uh, And it has certainly alarmed Rome uh, and there have been a number of interventions from the the prefect the doctrine of the faith and also from the Holy Father saying to them keep communion with the church with the apostolic tradition You might be from a very rich country. You might be highly educated whatever you need Christ and you need the church as much as everyone else and uh, I'm I think I'm fully with the Pope in, in calling us all into communion.
0: I had a great time. Several years ago, I got to speak in Uganda and meet some wonderful um, Catholic leaders there. What was it like meeting the African church, the Asian church?
2: It was one of the real joys of the Synod for me. that The way we met was normally we were in tables of about 12 people uh, for much of the time and we heard each other and got to know each other. You'd be at the same table for about a week, and then you'd move to another table, and you'd meet another group of 12 people. And I really felt at the end of that month, I had got to know a number of bishops and lay leaders from around the world in a way that I never had at a Vatican meeting before. And and some of them were very impressive. And I was delighted to meet, for instance. I I got to know quite a number of the African bishops, uh, some Asian bishops. I, tended, I was on the English-speaking tables, so it tended to be Africans, Middle Easterners, Europeans and Asians at those tables, uh, as well as Americans. And you might be pleased to know, I think the Americans did very well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you sound surprised. <laughs> You know, I was saying this to you the other night because, you know, you hear a lot about what people are pushing and there's a lot of confusion, not just in the church. It feels like society and institutions are coming part of the seams everywhere right now. I don't know what's happening. Um, But uh, I do take kind of uh, hope in this. I don't know any successful YouTube, like Catholic YouTube channels that are promoting heresy or sexual deviancy. Do you know what I mean? Like That's interesting, right? Like You would think if it's as prevalent as we f- fear that it is, that there's got to be st- someone out there being mm-hmm. like, the church needs to change their teaching on this, so we need women priests, but like, can you think of one YouTube channel that has more than, f- I don't know, anyone?
1: No, I mean, it's, it's the same with religious orders. Any religious order in the church that's promoting true faithfulness, Eucharistic adoration, the truths of faith, they're, they're bursting at the seams of vocations. But then those that are trying to bend things back you know, and say, oh, no, well, we don't need celibacy, we don't need this. We don't, like their typical median age of their vocation is like 75, 80 years old. They don't have postulants. They don't have novitiates joining. They don't have, they're not bursting at the seams because uh, many aren't even wearing the habits. And a lot of single young adult women are like, well, why would I just put on a lapel pin and talk about social justice and give up a marriage and a family for that? Why would I go that far? And so... the the religious orders that i see that are bursting at the seams are habit head to toe eucharistic Marianne, and 100 percent faithful to the holy catholic church
2: you know i was earlier this year i took
1: a thousand
2: young people from sydney to world youth day in lisbon and 300 of them including some in this room came with me to the holy land on the way uh And at the very beginning, we had a mass at the University of Bethlehem. And my young people were just being themselves, being beautiful, faithful, worshipping God with all their hearts. And an official from the university said to me afterwards, oh, your young people are very pious. And I thought, he doesn't mean that as a compliment. (laughs) And I said, well, brother, let me tell you, Today it's a choice between that and atheism. For their generation, you either take religion seriously and heart and soul, or you get carried away with the culture into who knows what. Uh, And so I have no doubt the young people I take to World Youth Day are more full on about their faith than they were 20 years ago when I first started taking groups to World Youth Day.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think when I was a kid and maybe when my parents were kids the rebellious thing to do would be to kind of kick against the system and against authority and against your school teachers. But today, when you <laughs> Matt Walsh once said, when your eighth grade math teacher Karen thinks black lives matter is cool, it's no longer cool. Or like <laughs> when they think social Marxism's a great idea, like it's really, really not. Yeah. So what I'm seeing like in my kids and, and their friends is there's a real kind of um, revulsion to the, obvious agendas that are being pushed on them from Disney and other places. These newer movies remind me of lame Christian movies from the 80s where yeah. the story didn't matter. We just had something to preach at you. Yeah. And it feels like the kids are rebelling.
1: Yeah, so I mean, this some, some well, cause for hope here. Well, when vice is the norm, the only rebellious thing to be is virtuous. And I think that's what we're looking at. I was at a high school just last week in Louisiana. They got about a thousand kids in the school more than 700 of them are involved in campus ministry. It was beautiful because they, they wanted to be good, and the school just needed to create a culture in which it's easier to be good, and they gravitated it towards it. They wanted to live lives of heroic virtue, and so in the midst of the world, I think this is what's truly appealing, is to live a countercultural life, which isn't really countercultural. You're the only ones actually building up the authentic culture. I've been really impressed with your priests. Just like manly... <laughs>
0: I um, like the, like, thank you for wearing the cassock. It's so cool. Like, it's so manly. It's just, um, and I imagine that a lot of these have been influenced by the late uh, George Cardinal Pell. Could you talk a little bit about the, I mean, I know many people here are probably aware of it, but for those who are watching, about the false accusations that were levelled against him, about how he kind of, in my estimation, heroically endured that hatred. He was physically spat on. Um, What what was he like? Because I only met him once in an aeroplane for about five seconds. And I didn't get a lot from that interaction.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, I knew him very well. He was a huge influence on me and a very dear friend from when I met him in the 1980s till, till he died. Last year, I, uh, at the beginning of this year, I uh, happily was in Rome for Pope Benedict's funeral and spent a few days with George in what turned out to be the last week of his life. Neither of us knew that, uh, but it was a real gift from God for me to have that, that precious time with him towards the, the end for him. Uh, he was a man of, of great faith, of deep prayer. Uh, very, very faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ was absolutely the Lord of his life in everything. It wasn't about politics, it wasn't about fame, it wasn't about ambition, it was about Christ. And he loved his church, uh, and he wanted to share that with the world. And when you see, if you read his prison diaries, how after being falsely accused, falsely convicted, falsely imprisoned. Any of us would be bitter after that. I'm I'm afraid that I would be bitter. Uh, It would make me angry with the world, maybe with God, certainly with the judicial system and my accusers, uh, when he knew full well he was innocent. He came out of prison, if anything, more gentle more merciful, more forgiving, than he went in. Uh, he called it his, his 404 days in, in uh, solitary confinement his long retreat. And he did seem to come out of this retreat an even better man. And, uh, well, I hope all of us can endure persecution in such a spirit and,
0: and be the better for it. Yeah, because I I can imagine, like, in my mind, if I endure persecution but everyone knows I'm innocent, like, yeah, but if I'm... If everyone thinks I've done evil things and you're in this prison cell knowing that the news media is taking it to 11 and they're trying to convince everybody he's he's done something he hasn't, that just must be such a lonely place to be in. What was he like as a... I mean, do you have any kind of anecdotes about him?
2: (laughs) Not ones I can tell here. Oh. (laughs) He had, he had a wicked sense of humour, uh, he loved to, to tease people, uh, he would, uh, I remember one day going to him as a young auxiliary bishop and saying, look, I've, I can't cope with any more jobs, I'm, you know, keep giving me, I keep getting these letters saying, thank you for accepting appointment two, X, Y, Z and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm on 22 committees at the moment. And he said, really? Well, you know, if you've got time to count how many committees you're on, I can put you on <laughs> another one. Uh, that, that, that's, that's his sort of sense of humour. It was wicked and, uh, and very amusing. I remember he told me once that he was trying to explain Australian humour to officials in the Vatican. <laughs> and he said, you know, in Australia, we, if someone, you really like someone, You slap him on the back and say, oh, you old bastard. (laughs) And this official said, bastard? (laughs) (laughs) They accuse your mother of immorality, and and you think this is friendly?
1: (laughs) And George said, well, in Australia, that's friendly. (laughs) I I think Matt used the words four times last night in his (laughs) presentations.
0: You know i'm sure as a bishop you keep abreast of what's going on in the church um, but jason and i were talking last night about how um when you invest emotional energy in things that you have not been given authority over it reduces your capacity to lead in the ways you've actually been called to lead to have authority over the things you really actually should have authority over and i get i get it uh, you know i remember my parents, who were very beautiful people, they would watch the news every night, you know? And, and I just, you know, I said, why, I don't want to do this. And why do you watch the news? And they said, well, don't you want to know what's going on in the world? Which I think is just a defensive way because I don't know, I think it was more about entertainment, you know? I think news is often more about entertainment, but we pretend it's this sophisticated thing where I'm educating myself. When much of the time, maybe just some of the time, we're entertaining that sin of curiosity that Aquinas talks about, right? We don't often think of curiosity as a sin, but when we invest our mental energy in things not for the glory of God, things that don't concern us, I guess what I'm asking is, do you agree? And then what advice do you have to us young Catholics who are being bombarded constantly with bad news, not only around the world, within our country, but within our church? I think you're
2: quite right, when St Thomas says the curiositas is a sin, uh, a vice, he's not saying we shouldn't be inquirers, he's the big one for pushing us to ask the big questions in life, uh, to, to, to keep asking the big questions and searching for the big answers and go to the reliable places to find the right answers. Uh, so he, he wants us to be curious in that sense that we use the word. But he doesn't want us to be distracted. You know, the kind of person that goes to the library for a book to answer this essay question, and, oh, they find another book on another question, and they start reading that, and then another one over here, and they never get to finish their essay, or even to start it. And look at how that happens on the internet, where you go looking for X, and you go click, 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 and who knows where you went up. Uh, That's curiositas. That's a kind of distracted interest in things that means you don't focus on the important things, on what you're really called to be focused on. Now, I remember talking to my mum about this. Uh, She in her her last days got very uh, connected with with the internet world, uh, principally because she discovered Facebook was a very good form of surveillance (laughs) on your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and so she was constantly surveilling what we're all up to as best she could through Facebook and other means. Uh, but she also got onto some blogs that were really very negative about the church, about the world, about everything. Uh, and they really disturbed her. And I remember uh, having a conversation about, about this. And I said, Mum, don't read them. They're just making you bleak. They're, they're not what you're called to at this time in your life. You know, she's now in a nursing home uh, at this time. I, I, I lost her late, last, late in the last year just passed. Uh, but I said, you're, you're, uh, you're not called at this time to be having opinions on everything in the world and, and being dark about most of it. We need you praying for the things you can pray for, like those children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who I know you're surveilling through the Facebook. <laughs> uh, and so I think, if you think of uh, the screw tape letters, what, what, what's the devil doing to trick us into going the wrong way? Well, one of the ways can be giving us lots of apparent information, news, but actually what it's about is making us gloomy, making us dark on everything uh, and and critical and angry, indignant uh, and losing confidence even in our church, even in our gospel, uh, even in ourselves under grace. And I think we should be saying, no, some of this stuff is not good for me. Some of this stuff uh, is actually from the evil one. It's, it's going to, to, to make my heart dark. And I'm going to go for things that will inspire me, what my real vocation is, that will make me want to share the gospel, the
0: love of Jesus Christ with all the world. Thank you. And Jason, you said that great thing last night, I'll never forget it about if you knew everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were just discussing, you can go down a rabbit hole of online news stories about everything going on in the church and these conspiracy theories and what about this and what about that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I thought like, okay, what if I knew the depths of every conspiracy theory regarding the church, the depths of the truth of every single thing? What would I even do with that information? Nothing. Because I'm not entrusted with the entire church. I'm entrusted with my domestic church. That's what I'm in charge of. And so sometimes we got to turn it off and I think have the attitude like St. Um, John Paul or John the 23rd said, had. when he'd go to bed at night, sometimes he'd look out the window to the Vatican to the world and he said, God, it's your church. I'm going to bed. Archbishop,
0: they're telling me to wrap up. It's been lovely to chat with you. I hope we get another chance to talk, but God bless you. Thank you for being a good bishop and thanks for having me.
2: And I thank you for praising my young priests and young religious here in Sydney. Uh, we've got some great priests and religious, young ones here in Sydney. I could do with a few thousand more. <laughs> so uh, you keep encouraging them. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you, Archbishop.
0: With Dr. Joanna, a uh, night show host or something. Thank you for being here. I just saw you in Adelaide. Oh,
3: I know. You've been everywhere. <laughs> and I just can I just say something about Jason? Yes. So when I met my husband, he didn't know he was gonna be my husband yet. Um, But when I kissed him, I said, that's my first kiss, and now we have to get married. I was 21. And um, he just walked away Um, (laughs) because he was like, that's so intense. But then um, we were doing a vocation thing where we had to be single for two years, and then we were long distance because he lived in Adelaide, I lived in Sydney. And in order to kind of be really committed to chastity, every month that we would visit, we would watch you and Kristalina, the video, the high school presentation, because it would just give us that inspiration. So, like, I was so excited. I was, you know, I love you, Matt. But Jason?
0: <laughs> no, listen, listen, listen. I understand because whenever I'm tempted to sexual impurity, I also think about Jason. And it goes right away. That's really good. So who, who are you?
3: Okay, so tell, tell my name is Jo. I'm, I'm married to James. Um, he finally got there. And <laughs> we have five kids aged between three and 12. Actually, she's turned 13 today on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So um, she was born in Oxford when I was doing my PhD. Her middle name is Immaculate, And um, yeah, so and I'm a prof- professor of law at Adelaide University and i guess the reason i really wanted to talk to you guys is because a couple of years ago a call was placed on my heart when the south australian parliament was voting on an abortion bill that would allow abortion right up until birth and for any reason and you know i at that point i was like very secure in my job i was an associate professor of law we had a mortgage i had these kids i think i had five at that point and i did feel this stirring of i need to do something i'm feeling called to do something and it's really scary actually, like you just feel a little bit like I do now, intimidated by the audience and the, you know, just like, oh my goodness, but over time, it built and I decided with, you know, I spoke to my husband and the kids, the three-year-old wasn't very helpful, but the older ones gave some good advice. And um, basically we discerned, we did discern. Um, and we, we jumped in though in terms of me going out on social media, speaking to with the Australian people on the issue of abortion every single day, even though I had... <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I knew, was, I knew it was career suicide and social suicide. But I also knew that I had to trust that this call had been given to me and I had to follow it. So um, I actually didn't know how to post on socials. I'd had a Facebook account when I was 20 and let it go because I found it inspired feelings of jealousy and competitiveness in me. And so I thought, I just don't want to have anything to do with that. So my husband would actually like film me, post it, and would write the bits together. And eventually I learned how to use my phone so I can do it now. But, you know, it's really amazing because in 18 months I've reached like 4 million Australians. And so I see the power of... Um, Because I actually feel like, I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like in our country, especially with young people, we're so scared on this issue. Like, first of all, there's a huge lack of awareness. People don't realise you can have abortion right up until birth for any reason, wall-to-wall. Like, in America, there's only eight states with laws as extreme as Australia's. And, you know, we've we've killed full-term babies at 37 weeks for any reason, so it's full-on stuff. But I feel like our generation, we're too scared to speak up because we're afraid of, like... What will it look like for me? You know, like, what will it look for, like for my career and for my relationships with my family and my friends? And so I really wanted, you know, your advice to all of us around this is the biggest moral imperative of our generation. Like, just while we're being here today at the Purpose Conference, 240 Australian children in utero have been killed. And every year it's 88,000. So leading cause of death. So what's the call for each of us? Like, sitting here today, like, what, what is it we need to do?
0: I think you'll have a much better answer than me, but I'll begin by saying that this—I think—we really have to view this as a spiritual war and a clash between uh, light and darkness. And I wasn't joking when I said abortion is like a sacrifice to the demon Moloch. And um, you know, I think we're currently me and a friend of mine, Father Jason Sharon, are in the process of praying about, and he's spearheading this building a gigantic shrine in Pittsburgh or outside of Pittsburgh uh, to pay tribute to the Blessed Mother for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. When Roe versus Wade was overturned, he called me and he says, Matt, we got to do something for the Blessed Mother. What do you have in mind? He said he wants to build a $100 million shrine. and, uh, And he said, how many rosaries were offered for the overturning of this? What are we gonna to do to thank our mother? So I really think the spiritual element has to be placed front and center. But.
1: Yeah. Um, I think one of the faults of the pro-life movement is focused so much on the supply of abortion and very little time on the demand for abortion. And what I mean by that is, when I was a college student, I started doing sidewalk counseling in front of an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh. And for three years, I stood in front of the abortion clinic and I talked to women who were 45 minutes away from getting an abortion. And I just started feeling late. Like, why am I meeting this woman who's having an abortion in 45 minutes when she's 20-something years old? Why couldn't I have met her when she was 15 or 16? Because maybe if I had talked to her about chastity then, she never would have dated this creep to begin with and be in this difficult situation today. So I felt like I was almost, like, standing on the banks of a flooded river throwing sandbags on it when there's a dam broken a quarter mile upstream. And if I could just go plug the dam, then I wouldn't have to do this for the rest of my life. And so not to undermine the importance of those who are doing crisis pregnancy work because it's an essential thing but to me the supply of abortion is one thing but if we can eliminate the demand which is unchastity then supply won't be an issue and so i think what we have to do is wed more closely pro-life to pro-love and until we effectively do that we're just throwing sandbags
3: i also think we have to show a more positive view of motherhood so I feel like I read recently that this you know tech founder she's like I had two abortions for my career and I'm like I'm a career woman I'm a professor of law and I've had five kids in like a decade it's doable like but it takes my husband to go I'm going to do a day a week you know, like, because he, he has to come to the party. It takes, like, young people from church helping out with babysitting. It takes my kids learning to be autonomous. I feel like, you know, I watched this movie, Bad Mums, the other day. If you, if you haven't seen it, don't see it. It's a terrible movie. It should just be called Bad Movie, but it's called Bad Mums. And, like, in the, in the movie, there's this whole rant about how motherhood just, like, ruins your life. And I feel like motherhood, just like sort of being religious, is a rebellious act. I feel like motherhood is a rebellious act, and we need to portray and empower women to see it as, like, this is actually our unique calling, that when we're mothers, we're not destroying everything about ourselves. We can actually, um, you know, like, my deepest, like, work is satisfying, but nothing compares with motherhood, you know? Yeah. yeah. And
1: that's what's more important Yeah. it's more important to be than to do. And so the most important thing that you can do for the pro-life movement is to be the vocation that God has called you to be. Because G.K. Chesterton said, the family is a cell of resistance to oppression. And the reason why the family is so much under attack is because the family is the weapon. Because by what means did God use to redeem humanity, a little holy family? And God doesn't change his ways. Yeah. And so I think what's needed more than anything is more holy families. That's what what's needed. You think of the, the, there's a Top Gun movie with Tom Cruise a summer or two ago, and the whole plot of the movie was to destroy the weapon of the enemy. That's what the whole movie was about. And to me, that's, that's the end game of what the devil wants to do, just destroy the weapon of the enemy. What's God's weapon? Holy families. And so that's the biggest thing we have in our arsenal is the vocation to which God has called each of us. And so before we go do, 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 he's calling us first to be. Mm. I did two episodes recently that would be very
0: helpful. Um, I'm convinced that abortion is the fruit of feminism, which I've come Mm. to believe recently is evil root and branch. Um, And if that sounds over the top, I'd recommend people check out an interview that just released today on Pints with Aquinas with Dr. Carrie Grass. Um, who has a PhD, uh, philosopher, she did a deep dive into feminism expecting that the first wave would have been fine, but then it went off the rails or something, and what she found was something very, very different. Um, Just to give one example, Mary Wollstonecraft is said to be the mother of feminism, but it was really her son-in-law, Percy Shelley, uh, who was the fuel behind feminism. And Percy Shelley once tried to summon up a devil in a crypt and then believed that Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost was actually the hero. That's how it begins. And what you find throughout the history of feminism is this trifecta of uh, this desire to destroy the the patriarchy by destroying marriage. Uh, So free love is something that has always been promoted, which is... a a silly way of saying it. it's not free, it's not love, it's like enslaved passion. Um, spiritualism and the occult is found throughout th- the whole thing. Why? Because often in spiritualism and the occult, you have a woman and a high priestess, so this desire to overthrow the male hierarchy, um, and then, of course, trying to overthrow men in government. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's the bitter fruits of feminism, which is hateful towards women. So I think you're exactly right. that. Um, doing flows from being, and so we have to reorient things to show the beauty of motherhood. Mm. Yeah, because... Um, yeah, especially in this day and age... What were they talking about the other day? Dinks or something? Double income, no kids?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a you know? lovely acronym online. Yeah. But it's just... It's poverty, because you have these people being like, look, we got all these pictures of us hanging out in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and now we're doing this. We don't need to worry about kids. We got double income. It's like, okay... What are you going to do with all those Instagram photos when you're like 75 years old and nobody's visiting you? And all of your friends have grandchildren, and they're celebrating all of this stuff. And What, what, are you just going to go back to your phone? And, hey, that that was great. Um, It's poverty. It's the poverty Uh, of affluence. I'll I'll let you get the last word
0: before we wrap up. But one final thing I would say is, I mean, we don't want to fall into the trap of having to pretend all the time that I just love being a mother, don't you know? Because being a mother is bloody hard. It's really hard hard sometimes. But I think it's really important that we have friends that we journey with Mm. who we share our struggles with. But that we really have to show the world that motherhood and fatherhood and, like, loving your wife, loving your husband is... Well, really it's important.
3: ultimately really fulfilling and deeply meaningful. Like, I think when you lean into that vocation, that's when you are, you know, the glory of God man fully alive. I know you guys have been very profound. I just want to say, can you guys follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Dr Joanna Howe, tell your friends, because we need to build our pro-life movement. When we become a tidal wave is when we will defeat abortion in our country. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you. Michael and Lorenzo. Hello, guys. Welcome, welcome. Nice to see you. Do us a favor and let us know what your name is and where you're from. Oh, yeah, I got the mic, that makes
4: sense? Um, so, I'm Michael. Um, what am I, 24 now? Um, I'm from the um, beautiful progressive utopia of Canberra. Um, a few hours from here, and um, what about Are me? Are they from Canberra, or do they like oppressive utopias? I couldn't tell. I don't, i got no idea, actually. Um, and I've just finished uh, university, thankfully it's over, and now I work doing, I don't know what, don't ask me, it's like consulting, it's kind of vague. Um, and I'm engaged to be married to a very beautiful woman, I think so, in about a month. So awesome. That's, yeah, that's,
5: Thank that's you. me. Hi, I'm Lorenzo, I'm, I'm 23, I'm almost done with university. I'm at the University of New South Wales. And over there I major, I study mechanical engineering and philosophy, right, so that's, uh, that's what I do. I'm almost done, back when I'm not doing this anymore, but I worked as a university ambassador. So I did outreach, kind of going to students out in Western Sydney, telling them basically about, you know, their opportunity to go to uni, basically. So I, I, I had like, I have like kind of an in like a, and a way in into kind of learning into the inner workings of U.S.W. Today.
0: Fantastic. And so, am I right in thinking you have a question or something? Yeah. Yes,
4: yes. You would be right there. So. And why are you together?
5: <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, <laughs> it's the, not what it looks like. the. the, the Powers from heaven decided that apparently our topics were quite similar. Ah, I see. So I'll let I'll let um, okay. I'll let him start first because he has he he can do that, and I'll kind of riff off for what he says.
4: All right. Um. So you know, at risk of sounding like one of those um rigid trads, um, my question is basically I, I don't think I'm alone in feeling this, but I feel like we've in the church we've kind of thrown away a lot of um a lot of our traditions that are really good, like if you think of, I don't know, if you think of any church built after 1975, I don't know, it doesn't look very nice, um, or whether that's music or um, even in liturgy or whatever the case may be, and just wondering what you guys think, kind of on a practical level, how as young lay people, we can, you know, do our, do our little bit to try to build up our own, like, small-scale small parishes, communities and stuff like that. Is is that even our job to do? I don't know. I've honestly got no idea, that's why I'm asking.
5: Right, and on my end, I guess my question is kind of of the traditional, like asking about, kind of bring back the traditional, but I guess of a more like intellectual bent, kind of within the university. See, I mentioned before that I was a, that I majored in philosophy, so I'm really, really interested in that stuff. And kind of dialoguing with people at university, they're they're thirsty for kind of, looking for things which are robust, like intellectually and true, right? And religion to them seems kind of just like a club, like a society to join, because it's, it doesn't seem, you can't take it seriously. But when you, when you present them with that, when you present them even the hint, of like the full edifice of like the intellectual tradition, especially the stuff as you find in someone like Thomas Aquinas or Aristotle or the scholastics, right? At, if they're not convinced, they're at the very least shaken out of kind of their complacency. Right? And so my question on my end is, right, how, how best can we articulate that, the classical philosophical tradition, the, the, the stuff that undergirds the teaching of the church, right, and present it in a way that, that can evangelize uh, people at universities today?
0: Yeah, so two questions. One has more to do with tradition, the other has more to do with the intellectual tradition. Yeah, we um, just moved into a house in Steubenville three years ago, and there was shag carpet everywhere. There was white shag carpet in the dining room. (laughs) And we ripped it up, and first we cut into it, and we realized there's beautiful hardwood floors under there. And my wife said, who would do this? I said, it's the same people who invented liturgical abuse. I don't know why they did it. (laughs) This was beautiful. We didn't need this. Um, But yeah, I think there is this real desire on the part of young people, like we don't want to be pandered to, we don't want to be patronized. We want somewhere to go and kiss the earth. Like, I want to go and fall on my knees. I want my hunger for God to be treated with seriousness, you know? So I think it's a shame when maybe it's the case that certain people or churches think what they have to do is entertain us. It's sort of like what you said earlier. If He comes to you and learns pleasure immediately from the woman or the man, then maybe that's what He'll learn to keep coming back to. If you think that your job as a priest or as a church is to entertain, and that's how you're bringing them in, well, you better keep doing that. But the point of the church is to, to proclaim, repent, and believe the gospel. And uh, it might not be as initially attractive, but it is the way to salvation.
1: Yeah, and I think that one of the ways this really needs to be reflected in the church moving forward is in our architecture. I had heard of a uh, someone describing modern Catholic architecture, and he said it's actually a burp in the history of architecture. It's there's no contribution that we're offering right now. And if you look at the technology that we had right now, if we had the piety of like the 14th century and they gave them our technology, what they could build. I mean, the Duomo in Milan took 700 years to build that thing. And what comes to mind for me is I spoke at a Jesuit high school in Tampa, Florida years ago. Now, a lot of the Jesuit schools, unfortunately, don't have the best reputation for orthodoxy and fidelity, but this school does. It is everything a Jesuit school could possibly it's be. It's old boys one, right? Tampa Jesuit, yeah, old yeah, boys school. And so the priest took me around the church at the time they had back then, which was built in the 1970s, brick and mortar, church in the round, you know, felt banners hanging all over the place. And, you know, he said, yeah, we're gonna tear it down. But he said, let me just show you something. He said, you see the stained glass window here? He said, when the, uh, the people, the construction workers got the blueprints for the windows to put the pieces together in the glass, um, they lost the blueprint for this window. And so they just kind of just like slapped up the glass wherever they wanted. And he said, it's actually an image of the risen Christ as a lamb. And if you look cl- closely, you can see a hoof over here. You can see an ear over here. There's this over there. And he said, but you know what? The rest of the church is so ugly, nobody's even noticed that there's something wrong with it. And they took a wrecking ball to the entire church, just raised it to the ground, and it built up this incredibly beautiful church in its place. And what this school is doing right now, they are bringing in, at, at the Easter vigil, on average more than 20 of the students to baptism per year of kids who came into this high school as nothing. And then by Easter, they're in the waters of baptism. And it's just because they're giving them what is true and what is good and is beautiful. And this is what we're created to give uh, and and receive. And I think that's what we're starting to see in Sydney. For for example, how many of you are in RCIA? What do you
0: call it? It is RCIA. RCIA. Are there any of you in RCIA? No, that fell flat, didn't it? I was really expecting quite a cheer. but. I've met a ton of people that have come up to me and have said they're coming into the church. I guess they're not here, but yeah. <laughs> but I guess to your question, your question has to do with particularly like what can I do? I think one thing you can do, if I were a single man, I, I, would perhaps be, I would perhaps have more dedication to my local parish and I would praise my priest to no end whenever I felt like he did something courageous for which he would get blowback from the congregation. Yep, yeah, yeah. I try. But, sorry. Oh, I, I just said I try. Yeah, but, if I, but as a married man with children, I don't have time. Like, I'm not going to bring my kids to this parish because it's my local parish if I think it's garish and if they play the City of God song. I'm not doing it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would rather drive an hour to find somewhere where we can find reverence. Intellectual tradition. Um, I don't... I mean, not everybody needs to understand, you know, Aquinas's, uh Five proofs for God's existence, but some people do, and uh, it's impressive when they do. Um, Dr. Ed Faser obviously has done a great job understanding and articulating the five ways, and I think um, you're right. It's uh, I think that atheists and skeptics are impressed when we refuse to use bad or even mediocre arguments for God's existence, when we can do what Thomas Aquinas does and kind of reiterate their objections to the Catholic faith better than they can, which is what he so often does in the Summa and elsewhere, um, and uh, and then give people sort of substantive answers to their questions, even if those substantive answers go above their head or are too difficult to figure out, um, someone, we, we absolutely need to be doing that. Yeah, that's
5: right. Uh, one thing, one last thing I'll say about that is that, uh, you know, I think Um, Archbishop Fisher talked about that kind of the synodal way, right? Where where you're walking along with the person, right? Part of that is when you do kind of present it, and I know this from experience. When I articulate kind of, you know, Aristotelian philosophy to people, it it flies over their heads. But you know, you you establish something like I do philosophy group over at UNSW, right? Where I kind of teach people like the basics of classical philosophy, right? And taking them through the entire year, they will start to understand it. And once they do understand it, they'll realize that it that it makes sense. The Catholic faith makes sense and is impressive. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think it was Bishop Barron who said that when he was in high school, a priest laid out the five ways, and it was something rather simple. And I think he said, I didn't really fully comprehend it, but I I knew it existed. Like, I knew there was an intellectual explanation or underpinnings of the faith, even if I couldn't fully understand it right away, which is really important for people to understand. Well, last word? Yeah, I, I
4: mean, I guess, I don't know, I guess I was just thinking as you were talking it's like, from my perspective, it's very easy to be discouraged about, you know, things in the church. I'm not, like, talking about the things that we don't need to worry about that are, like, far away, but even, like, in your own parish. But I guess just trying to accept that it's not actually going to be perfect. And I think I heard you say this once. It was that on one of your podcasts. It was, like, I don't actually deserve um, a good liturgy or beautiful things like that I actually deserve hell, which is a happy thought. Um, LAUGHTER
5: <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you think of your family, like, you know, like, all of us have families of one sort or another, and there's odd people, and there's odd relationships, and there's, like, tender things that you shouldn't talk about with so-and-so, and parishes are just an extension of that, and so we should expect to see those odd and awkward things, but we don't want to abandon the church, like, we wouldn't want to abandon our family just because of the awkwardness or the things that make us cringe. All right. God bless you both. All right, thank, thank you. Oh, thanks guys. Okay, we have Joyce, and is it Eliza, Eliza? Welcome to Bites with Aquinas. Who are you, how are you, and where are you from?
6: Hello, hello. My name is Joyce, aka um, Joyce for Mysteries. Um, that's because I have a page, follow it, Facebook and Instagram, where I sing poetry and all that. Where I'm from? Livotown, 2170. Uh, um, I'm a marketing coordinator at a plumbing company. <laughs> nice dealing with poo. Um, and, and also I am a youth leader with the Smaskin movement Australia. But first and foremost, I'm a daughter of God and hope to bring glory to God with everything I do. So, me. Wow.
0: Thank you, Joyce.
6: How do I how do I follow
7: that one up? Um, yes, it's Eliza. It's Eliza. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm Eliza. Um, I am 22. I work in Ush Sydney Catholic Early Childhood Services. What do I do for work? Oztag and Toasties. Nice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I reign from Liverpool as well, um, and I'm from the Samaskan community. Shout out to the Samaskans. Um, and, yeah, and I also am a student, and I am from ACU Strathfield Campus Ministry. <laughs> so That's good. what I was
0: hoping for when I said RCIA.
8: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you for being here. And what, you, did, what did you want to talk about? <laughs>
6: So, my topic is on mental health. Um, it means a lot to me uh, to bring this topic up. It's not talked about much, and I'd like to, I guess, get your opinion advice on how us young adults, youth, um, can accept mental health, um, how we can um, deal with it um, in a Catholic understanding, Catholic perspective, and also, like most of us here working at uni, how we can, I guess, um, I guess, open it up in our workplace in a safe environment and eliminate the stigma around mental health. I'm very passionate about advocating for mental health after you know, what I've gone through, and so now I'm happy to talk about it, I guess, now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, and,
0: and did you want to follow up? So oh,
7: yes, yes. Um, <laughs> the topic that I want to be talking about is, you guys have been talking about it, um, like, a lot. Uh, it's spiritual warfare. We need it to be talked about, um, and on the terms of like we understand, or some people in the room do, but like we need to make it known to the young adults here um, about the father of lies, father of half truths, and why he delights in um, he delights in our wounds. And you guys were talking about it uh, yesterday, and um, how uh, what's it called? I've been reading a book, Unbound, by by Neil Lozano, and he says something on the terms of lions. You were talking about lions. And um, he goes something on the terms of lions love to prey on the wounded. And it's such a thing to, underst- it's to understand in the world that we live in today, in 2023 especially, on why he's attacking young adults and our woundedness. And, sorry, this is a lot of questions. Um, and also, um, why, like, And on spiritual warfare, what is it? Like, what do we put on for spiritual armour? And why do we, why is it important to pray the rosary and pray for the intercession of Mary, our mother?
0: Thank you. Could you give me another word for mental health? Because that's like an umbrella term. And and maybe it's Australian. We say in America, maybe it's more of an Australian term. What do you mean? Mental
6: health? Are you talking
0: about specific kind of issues that people might have? Or when you say mental health, what are you referring to?
6: Like anxiety, oh, right. stress, um, okay. you know, all the different disorders that the doctors give you.
3: Um, um, I'm part of an order of disorder.
0: You what, sorry? I'm part
6: of the order of disorder.
0: Okay. Order of yeah. disorder.
6: It's also called the perpetual discernment group as well. <laughs> OPD. Anyone in that? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, so, uh, bringing it back to mental health, yeah. So. Basically, yeah. So you know, anxiety arises a lot, especially you know, amongst uni students. When I was a uni student,
0: I, I mean, I, I'm not being a medical health professional, I couldn't speak to the particulars. But one thing I harp on a lot on clients with Aquinas, and I'm convinced I'm right about, is that the phone is both the cause and the reliever of our anxiety. It seems to relieve it. Uh, you think about this, you go to a coffee shop and you get in line and you don't really know what to do with your hands and you feel sort of awkward because someone's looking at you and uh, rather than make conversation or just stand there thinking, you pull out your phone and it kind of relieves that sort of anxiety. But it's also the cause of the anxiety because uh, when I was a child, you could get in touch with me by calling my house, by sending me a letter or by coming to find me physically. That was it. And now you've got all sorts of people coming to find you, as it were, in a million different ways. And I don't think we've been made for that, nor do I think we have nearly the amount of self-control we tell ourselves that we have about our phones. Uh, So I think we really have to put our phones in their place. I think for some of us, hopefully more than some. That might mean just setting it on fire and then apologizing your, to your parents if they bought it for I've you. It, uh, it, might, you know, it might mean what I do is I have an office in Steubenville and very often my wife hates it. I leave my phone at the studio and then I go home for the night. I say I hate it because it makes her life more difficult. But that doesn't, I, I always say that doesn't matter. I feel good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what she, marriage is about. That's yeah. what I try
0: to tell her. She, she doesn't get it. Because she'll try to call me. And for me, when I can just separate the the loud, the binging right there, right, they like (laughs) away from me, and then I can actually read a book and time slows down and life becomes a lot easier for me. I don't think, because it kind of like the phone, I think, keeps us in this perpetual fight or flight response, right, where you're engaging with text messages and emails and bings and phone calls. And then when you've got no one contacting you, you're still refreshing your YouTube page for some unknown reason. Um, to avoid yourself, I think. And so for me, in regards to what you just said about anxiety and stress, putting the phone away from myself in a very rigorous way has helped me personally.
1: What yeah, do you th- and I want to confirm that. I uh, read a psychologist recently, and he said the average level of anxiety in today's teenager is the same level of anxiety for teenagers in the 1950s who were admitted to mental hospitals for anxiety disorders. That's the average and that's all from the phone. 99% of that is from cell phones. And yeah, granted, there's anxiety that's happens with family dynamics and things like that, but uh, to, to lead it into the spiritual warfare aspect while we have time, um, I think the most important line of defense for spiritual warfare is to live in the state of grace. That's the most important simple thing, the, the basics of just remaining in the state of grace, using the sacraments, and having the prayer life. Instead of having this morbid fear that the devil's always gonna find a way in, just, Don't give him more attention than he needs you know the padre pio it's like a dog on a chain as long as you don't go within the reach he's not going to bite you and so just to to keep that in mind and then tying it into the mental health issue um a couple things in terms of the mental health one is to try to keep in mind that if you experience mental health issues don't take upon yourself the burden that it's maybe because i'm not praying hard enough And maybe I'm not holy enough. Because if I got really, really, really holy, then this thing would go away. But it's not going away. And I'm praying. And I'm still struggling with PTSD. Or I'm, I'm praying. I'm still struggling with anxiety. Or I still have this. Or I still have that. And you need to let go of this idea that if you just got holy enough, the whole thing would just vanish. Because sometimes God, in the providence of His mercy and love, allows us to have limps of different natures, whether it could be spiritual, emotional, physical, or whatever that binds us to Him in our weakness. And it's, it's hard because it's like, no, I wanna be free. I wanna be able to run. I wanna be able to fly. I wanna be able to do this without this, this hindrance. But God in His mercy is allowing us to struggle in this because He knows that it's teaching us the dependency that we need to have on Him. And so what we need to do for our part in terms of the mental health, make sure you're finding a good counselor who knows Catholic anthropology, because a bad doctor can actually do more harm than good by infecting the wound. And so you wanna be able to find a good Catholic counselor and talk to them and pour this out. And don't think that I just need to get to my vocation, you know, and then this stuff is just gonna be left in the ba- in the past. Because this stuff is not gonna get, ba- marriage is not a car wash. And a lot of people think that it is. Or I'm just gonna get into religious life and then I'm just gonna leave it in the past. No, because a lot of these things are often triggered by stress. And your vocation is bound to have plenty of that, especially as I know the married life. And it'll bring these things up to the surface like oil and water. And it's gonna be more challenging to heal these within your vocation than prior to it. And so dedicate yourself to your healing process. Even though it's a grind, even though it's frustrating, find a good counselor, pour your heart, whole heart into this. A friend of mine says, your mind is like a bad neighborhood. Don't go in there alone. In other words, bring company, get a good counselor, dedicate yourself to this, and please understand that even sometimes mental health issues, that God can even be using that as a means to your sanctity, not as a sign of the absence of it. There is even a patron saint, Saint Dimphna. Uh, I think there's even, like, a podcast that they have on Catholic mental health issues named after St. Dimfna. And so, yeah, don't take on the spiritual burden of guilt. Thinking if I just got holier and more prayerful, the thing would go away, you know, in God's timing and in his, his perfect timing. Yeah. Excellent. I'm sorry we don't have more time, but we have to wrap up. But God
0: bless you, and thank you so yeah, much thank for being you, being Thank you. Here. Thank you. Thank oh, you. Now I think we have Emilio. I'm very excited. Look at that, mate.
1: Nice to meet you. No, 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 you've got to guess. You get three guesses. What's in the esky? What's in the esky? Wow. I know Matt likes bourbon. Uh, I don't know if that's a, is it an alcoholic but present see, for if it, host? Was,
0: if it was bourbon, they probably wouldn't chill it, would he? This is true. Okay. Is it
1: pickled crab?
8: <laughs> <laughs> nah, not pickled crab. One more guess. Is it a beverage of sorts? It's a beverage. Is it a beer? It is a beer. Oh. <laughs> Is it a Cooper's Pale Ale? No, nah, it's a good old hard-earned VB mate. Oh. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice and chilled. Okay.
0: Alright, I'm going to be honest with you. Growing up, we always made fun of VB, and I joined in because as a South Australian... Alright. As a South Australian, I was taught to hate Victorians from birth. And now after the severe lockdowns, I realised we were right. But the... Um,
8: I am excited to try this and actually give you my honest opinion. I love it. Alright, is it a twist-off? It's a twist-off. That's what you call masculine masculinity. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Jason, do you like it? I like red wine. It's, uh-huh. de- it's, <laughs> it's
0: definitely bitter. They say bitter, and it is bitter. Oh, it's crisp. It is crisp. It's very cold. I'd drink almost anything if it was this cold, though. It Uh, helps. It is lovely to have you. Thank you, you anyway.
8: Nice to to be here. So, uh, where are you from, and why are you wearing that hat? (laughs) (laughs) So, my name is Emilio. I'm 27, from Sydney, Chester Hill. My parish is Saint-Charles-Spongebob. Shout-out to to all the Maronites. Ah, (laughs) R-C-I-A! Amazing. And um, I'm here to talk about, with you gentlemen, masculinity and um, the struggles that men go through today with trying to, like, reach that level of manhood that they want to attain, you know? Like, I guess what God's design for masculinity is. And I'd like for you guys to, like... Talk about that design, God's design.
1: One thing that comes to mind for me is that men learn manhood from men. You know, we need to be in the presence of guys that we admire. And I think if we were hanging out with guys or girls or whatever who aren't really living a life of pursuing virtue, what you tend to see is their sins and your virtues. But then when you hang out with people that are virtuous, you tend to see their virtues and your sins. And as a result, you tend to ascend more quickly in the interior life. So I think one of the biggest keys is just surrounding yourself with godly men. I remember a a friend of mine, I had a phone call recently with him, and he's like, yeah, I was talking to, you know, Matt, this guy from college. You remember him? I'm like, yeah, I knew who he was. I didn't know him real well. And he's like, yeah, I've been friends with him for a while. And he said, "I just talked to him that day. He said, you know, he gets up at 4.30 in the morning to start his morning prayers, so he's got one and a half to two hours of prayer life each morning before his wife and kids wake up. So he what knows that And I'm like, well, yeah, I was like, I get up a little early for prayer, but it ain't two hours, man. But that conversation, I've just been ruminating on it for a while. Like, do I take my interior life seriously enough? And th- that's the fruit of just one little passing conversation of being around the right kind of guys. And so I think it's so important not only to have guys in your life that you're with that are solid, but the saints that you look up to i I in particular not only saint john paul ii but like saint joseph and uh there's a lot of bad catholic art that shows him as an elderly man which is really no i mean the the typical guy at that age would get married at 18. you know because god told me like hey go get married Go from you know Nazareth to Bethlehem to yeah. Egypt to Nazareth. Like you're not gonna do that with a walker. You know it's not even if there's tennis balls underneath. You're not gonna get there. like <laughs> have. And so, Joseph's like a, you know he's a carpenter, not only a carpenter like construction worker, mason re- yeah. reworker, and like and, and like they have this image uh, that I like to brew on you know stew on, on in terms of Saint Joseph that God took the most beautiful woman who's ever existed, oh. and to entrust her spotless purity and innocence to a man chose a college-aged guy. Because his love was not a threat to her purity. His love was the safeguard of her purity. Yeah. And so the more time we spend just like ruminating on the lives of the saints, surrounding ourselves with authentic Catholic man, the more likely it is to rub off on us. Matt? Yeah, masculinity.
0: I think um, we can't get away from the fact that we currently live in a society that doesn't know what men are, women are, marriage is, or sex is. That's not hyperbole. What is a woman? I don't know. <laughs> you know, or we think sex is any kind of sexual genital acts. We don't know what it is. We don't know what marriage is, you know. Um, so, consequently, I think we're very, very confused. And I think one way men, uh, sh- Catholic men, sh- could grow in masculinity is by not looking to the, uh, m- the inverse of these toxic feminists, namely these red-pilled <coughs> men. Yeah. Uh, this seems to me
1: to be effeminate, actually. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. Cause yeah, you're... we we talked about this this afternoon. The high school kids Aquinas's definition of effeminacy is when a man refuses to let go of what is pleasurable in order to do what is arduous, difficult, good. Oh. And so you might have these machismo, red pill, Andrew Tate type guys that look exteriorly very machismo, and they have elements of masculinity, of, of discipline and athleticism and physical strength. Um, but the question is, okay, is this authentic masculinity or is there a level of effeminacy here? Okay. That do I even know how to say no to the pleasure? Do I have an inordinate attachment to the pleasure and I have this hyper-masculinization going on? And I think mm. this is why a lot of women are fed up and leaving the dating scene. Because like, yeah. it's not because of toxic masculinity because if it was masculine, it wouldn't be toxic. Yeah. It's, a it's to- toxic effeminacy. lack
0: of masculinity yeah. is the problem.
8: Yeah, because something I'd like to touch up on is about when I say living God's, like the God's design for masculinity is one of those things that I like to say is um, being able to, what's the word, Um, I forgot it. Maronite,
0: uh, (laughs) Lebanese men are some of the most manly looking dudes I've ever met. Thank you, sir. (laughs) You're one of them. Thank you, sir. Um, So what would your advice be to me and Jason
8: and other men who really want to be? (laughs) (laughs) Did I say something funny? Look, uh, <laughs> my friends call me the masculine hero for some reason. Oh. <laughs> Look, um, for me, a good man is someone who knows his value and his, his virtues. Someone that he works hard for the glorification of God and to support his family and friends. He's not like he's, he's very giving. He lives his prayer life as, as well as he can. Some people can obviously live it. This much, some people can this much, as long as you do it as best, to the best of your ability. And um, another question that I had was, w- does a woman become more feminine when the man is truly masculine? Oh, let me tell you this, because I, kn-
0: I know. <laughs> as, as you permit, can tell, per- I'm nervous. Permit me to be a little vulnerable here. Uh, my wife and I have only recently, in the last few years, experienced this new wave of healing, and it's been very beautiful. Um, When I was raised and when my wife was raised, you know, you're raised in disordered relationships and you learn disordered behaviors, which you justify, rationalize, know no other way, and then you come into this marriage, eh? And then you have this way of relating where one way of relating kind of enables the other and this person's way of relating maybe enables the other and you kind of think it's normal until you start to heal and then you realize you now have to relate in a different way. So what I mean is this, I think I came into marriage with just these very unmasculine behaviors. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was raised in a country town in South Australia where you don't really have close mates who you share your heart with, your fears with, your, you know... You do that with a woman or two I, and I'm not in the sexual way But just like your friends. I had a lot of close women friends yeah. who I'd share my heart with and then the fellas Maybe after the fourth VB, I'd start to share with them, but not <laughs> before love You, you, know? love Where, you. <laughs> Whereas Whereas my wife was sort of raised to sort of like she was the peacekeeper in her family, right? So she had to make sure everything was everyone was okay because there was some bad stuff going on at times, eh? And so then we come into this marriage, and I hadn't learned how to bear my burden on behalf of her. I really didn't. So instead, I would like kind of just dump all this stuff oh. on her, kind of this, this emotional stuff on her. And she felt that she had to regulate my emotional state, because that was the role she played in her family. And so that was kind of keeping me in this unmasculine state, whereas she kind of almost had this more of a masculine role in just trying to keep me at peace. I mean, both were disordered, but, but now what's happening is, oh, it's been so beautiful. Like, she has become softer because she's beginning to trust that my strength will step up for her and allow her to be soft. So to your question, I know that when I'm good to my wife and she knows I've got her, I've got the family, we're okay then she can relax. Mm. And when she relaxes, she becomes softer. And when she's softer, I find her much more attractive, quite honestly, mm. just like she finds me more attractive yeah, well. if I'm stronger. Yeah. So that's been a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's weird to learn how well. to relate to a woman you've been living with for the last 17 years now in a slightly different way as you begin to, let's dig, un-twist, you know, what Sin did, yeah.
8: Yeah, well, there's one of those things I wanted to touch up on as well. Was the um, the men controlling their passions and emotions? Not that a man can't be emotional, but what I mean by that is fault like those passions that lead us to sin, and like those emotions that lead us to sin as well. There's very bad um, sins. That's something that I reckon we gotta have under control as well. I reckon if a man doesn't have that under control, that's when he spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. something that I, I like to spread
1: as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a simple principle that y- you either govern your passions or your passions govern you. Mm. And that's the difference between a boy and a man. And so the man learns to kind of conquer himself for the sake of the woman as opposed to conquering the woman for the sake of himself. Yeah. And I think what really kind of inspires guys, you know, not only that masculinity, as Matt was highlighting, can kind of inspire authentic femininity, but authentic femininity inspires authentic masculinity.
7: Yeah, when 100%. she's in
1: a posture of receptivity and trust, It makes the man want to step up a bit, you know, so that he can show that I'm I can do this. I can step into this place. As opposed to when she's in a place of distrust, not feeling safe, and needing to grasp and take control, then and then it just becomes this battle. Whereas if she can be in that place of trust, then you you hear you know Saint Paul talk about submit to your husbands and you know the defensiveness. But if 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 you read the rest of the chapter and that he's willing to crucify himself for Mm -hmm. her, well, that's a that's a mission. If If she's got a husband willing to do that. You know, then, then she's going to be able to fall under that mission of that's self-sacrifice. Right. But right. but I, I think that's why it's so important for guys to have a devotion to Our Lady, you know, because just her oh. authentic femininity inspires authentic masculinity.
0: Hundred I mean, percent correct. Yeah, I guess in summation, we would say I would say like read the lot. We should all of us, myself included, like look to the saints. Like don't look to like modern day people that, X or Twitter is pushing out there. Or you know who's popular today as far as being manly like. I nah, look to the saints and uh, and look to our Lady because uh, there's a lot of imposters, I think, today. You know.
8: Yeah, hundred percent.
0: You're a good man. It's thank nice you, to sir. talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Nice to meet you.
8: Thanks for the beer. <laughs> I've just got one more thing. What? Just one more thing. One more beer? No, one more. Please <laughs> uh, no. So I've got a gift for you guys. Okay. Wow. I've, Did you uh, hear that, that? Was the estrogen <laughs> that went up in the room again? So I made these. Did you? Wow. St. Shabo got you and wow. Saint Veronica Giuliani guard you. Yeah, thank is you. Is it blessed yet? Yes, Father Sheldon blessed them. Thank you. And then um, <laughs> you. and then the last thing, you asked me a question about the hat. Yeah. So I walked into a hat shop one day and I needed a new hat and I was like, what is the most conservative hat I can find? It was don't mess with Texas. <laughs> don't mess with Texas. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks, brother.
0: Check it out. All right, we have Brother James Price from the Missionaries of God's Love. Good to see you. So, we should begin by telling Jason and those who are watching from home, who
9: are the Missionaries of God's Love? Missionaries of God's Love are an Australian founded congregation. (laughs) (laughs) Founded in Canberra in 1986. And we exist um, to evangelize young people and the poor in the power of the Holy Spirit, under the grace of what has come to be known as the Charismatic Renewal, which is a, a power of the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in a new way in the church in this age. So, yeah. I uh, was actually actually discerned the MGLs for a little bit
0: and went. You look to good in brown and white. Yeah. <laughs> well, I went to the uh, I went to the uh, Come and See weekend, and I just love. Father Ken and Father Ryan and just good men.
9: Yes, I'm very grateful for um, for the witness of those men. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is always awkward. I don't know how to say it, but what do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, um, I was yeah here to talk about discerning God's will, and often you've actually quoted a, a contemporary of Father Ken's, uh, the Canadian from the com, the Canadian man, Father Bob Bedard. That's right. Um, And he said, "Yeah." Since discernment became fashionable, no one's made a decision since. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean that was kind of my discerning motto. And uh, yeah, I'd like sort of to crack that one open and just sort of talk about what are some of the pitfalls maybe that young people fall into in in discerning, and why do we get stuck in in these um yeah in in the state of perpetual discernment? Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the things I, I jump right into is that. One of the most overlooked and important aspects of discernment is action. Is she the right one for me? I don't know. Should I ask her? Ask her out. Go on a date. You'll figure it out that way a heck of a lot faster than just by doing novena after novena. Because uh, (laughs) honestly, I think novenas are not a substitute for authentic discernment. It's often like I want an answer in nine days, and that's not how God works. And so well, novenas are a blessed gift for the church, but they're not a substitute for authentic discernment. And so what we've got to make sure is like act, go, trust in God, and walk, and He'll direct you. And if you feel like, well, I, I don't know what He wants, and like it's almost like you have a seed in your hand—is it an apple seed or is it an orange seed? Well, I don't know. I mean, it looks like an apple seed. It could be an. Just put it in the ground water the thing, see what goes up, which means like, okay, well, I think maybe I might be called the religious life. Do a come and see weekend. Go check it out. Talk to some priests. How did you hear your vocation? And so I think action is one of the most important things often overlooked. Um, and, then, and then also a priest, a friend of mine back in San Diego said, the Holy Spirit speaks to you a hundred times a day. How often are you listening? And if you get used to this habitual yes to the Holy Spirit, this docility to the Holy Spirit, with those very little yeses, the big yes of your vocation will fall naturally into place. And so just focus more on the little yeses than the big yeses, and then also look at, okay, what are the, the desires that I have? Because I always think of those as gifts from God, meaning I, I have this ache for the married life. I have this ache for the priesthood. Okay, well, what the, what's the gift he gave you? And you might be like, well, my problem is I have an ache for both. I see the beauty of the priesthood. I see the beauty of the religious life. W- w- which path should I do? I remember Mother Angelica walking with some seminarians once around that religious grounds, and she said, you know, I just want to let you know, that if you don't want to be a husband and a father, then we don't want you in the seminary. And I was like, well, wait, 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 what? Unless we, wait, you're saying if we don't want that, then you don't want us? And she's like, exactly, because what kind of priest would you be if you didn't want to be a father and have that spousal love? And so a lot of times we think that the, that the ache for the other vocation needs to completely evaporate before we enter into the religious life. I spoke with a priest a while back, and he was sharing with me that there was a phase in his priesthood where he mourned his fatherhood, Uh, the biological fatherhood that he would never become an earthly father and he wept over that and to me that isn't like well that's a sign that celibacy is unhealthy no that's a sign of a healthy priest that he's able to process those emotions and meet Jesus Christ in that offering. Because if you're offering up something that's easy to give up for Lent, it's not much of an offering. You offer up something very difficult, that's a profound Holocaust. And so I think it's important for people to know in the discernment process, a good Catholic is gonna feel torn between these two things. They're gonna realize the beauty of the religious vocation, realize the beauty of the married life. And so don't wait for one of those flames to completely blow out in order to take the other path. You know, if you think, hey, maybe it's a religious life, and don't, in the meantime, last thing I'd say is don't guilt yourself into a false vocation of thinking, well, I've heard that, like, if you're a guy and you pray that you should become a priest, but I don't really want one. I want to be a priest. Uh, but I feel like I'm giving God my sloppy seconds if I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm getting married when He really wants me to be a priest. I remember uh, Pope John XXIII uh, was friends with, I believe, an assistant or a bishop, and they were friends with a young man who's wavering between priesthood and the married life. And he ended up choosing the married life. And then word came back to the pope through this assistant, and he said, oh, I bring some bad news. So-and-so fell for the trap, I meaning he became married instead. And John Twenty-third immediately corrected him, said, no, 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 we don't have six sacraments and a trap. We have seven sacraments.
0: Brother James, in a moment, I'd love to ask you how you made the decision to join the MGLs, but I'll say something shortly here. I think maybe sometimes, I wonder if the reason we over-spiritualize the discernment process is that we're looking for a degree of certainty that really isn't natural, and we think we have to have some sort of supernatural experience so that we can know beyond doubt that this is the path to take. I remember when I was discerning marriage with my wife, I had actually bought the ring in Australia, so here. I usually say Australia, like it's on the other side of the world. Bought it here, moved to Texas, but I still wasn't sure if I should propose, and I was really worried, and I was, I heard of a friend who prayed for three signs, and the signs were outrageous, and he got all of them, and it was like he wanted to see a full moon and a deer, and he was in the city, and like something else, and so I'm like, I am gonna do that. (laughs) So I prayed for three outrageous signs and got none of them. And I'm, and I'm kneeling down after having received the Eucharist. And I, you know, sometimes you imagine the Lord speaking to you. Well, my Lord sometimes speaks to me like a belligerent Aussie father. And Jesus said to me, well, you want to bloody marry her or not? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you're old enough and ugly enough to make this decision. And I went, "Right Righto. And if you don't mind, before I invite you, I want to share with those who hadn't heard this story. I shared it with the men the other night. I was really worried about proposing, and I called my good mate, Mark Bennett, who lives in Brisbane, Australia. Anyone know Mark? Yeah. Wow, interesting. RCIA? (laughs) I called Mark, and uh, this is the, I remember I called him from my office, and this was the conversation. I said, hey, Mark. Like, I I love this girl, she's beautiful, obviously, and I just don't know, like, I'm having some doubts, and if this isn't the right decision, if I propose, it's like there's no turning back. And he just sort of cut me off. He said exactly this.
3: What the bloody hell
0: are you friggin' talking about, you idiot? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) She's better than you anyway. You need to propose before she figures that out. (laughs) (laughs) That night, I proposed to my wife. So, Brother James, how did you kind of overcome that and make the decision for the MGLs?
9: Yeah, well, for me, um, I know you guys have been talking a bit about not over, no, it's not necessarily an out of the blue, blue experience, but I was, yeah, a young fellow and I was dating a girl at the time and I went on a retreat and I was chatting to one of the brothers and, um, who was, yeah, from the MGLs, he's running the retreat, helping run it. And just he was talking about his experience of grieving over losing his father. I felt this clarity wash over me that my, my whole life made sense and lied to the fact that I was meant to be a priest. And, um, yeah, so I went forth from that into then I was going overseas for a year. And I was really keen on on joining the brothers. But I just came to, again and again, I came face to face with my own wretchedness and, um, yeah, my own sin, particularly my, um, yeah, in chastity, that was big. And, um, yeah, and just in the face of that struggle, I I, I got to a point where I just felt like giving up. And that that was, I just made that up or something. But what the grace that, that broke through for me was that Um, On the feast of St. Matthew, I had this profound grace where I came to realize, um, chained to my spiritual director, that just as Matthew was sitting in that tax collector's booth in his sin, when Jesus walked past him and and said, come follow me, and he got up and followed him, then the same way Jesus was looking at me and saying, come follow me. And, um, you know, the least I could do was just, um, even if I didn't understand why it didn't make sense and every instinct in me wanted to run, I just, you know, I could offer God a bit of courage. I felt I had that. And... I got up and followed, and it's been the best, the best thing I've ever done, yeah.
0: I really want to encourage the... Thank you. I really want to encourage the young men and the young women who are open to a vocation to please go and check out the MGLs. These guys are gold, and uh, if you don't know much about them, please take the time to do it, because, yeah, everything... All of my experiences with your fantastic community have been so... Lo- just beautiful so
9: I'm yeah bless you man thank you so yeah. much yeah i'd really like to just take this you know this final opportunity to um yeah as a young man growing up you know i was um it was a deep wound in my heart in the, in the area of my sexuality and i'm sure there's many other men in this room like that and you guys this are the real two prophets for um our generation matt particularly on the porn front and um and jason more generally and i was just yeah just so encouraged by well, i remember being i was meant to be studying for my HSC, you know, was we sitting in there watching an Jason ever talk. You know, and my dad would walk and be like, "What are you doing, son?" And I'm yeah. like, "Oh, nothing. It's math testable <laughs> I'm just looking at porn. It's not. A, it's not a chastity talk at all." Yeah. yeah. So, um, and and yeah, Matt, you just you really really have preached a strong, consistent message on the on the porn front, and it's really blessed so many men. So and yeah, yeah no, thank
1: you. good. Thank you very much, I, brother. Appreciate you just bring up the importance of purity at heart and discerning your vocation. Uh, I think it was uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori said that when when a raven finds a dead body, the first thing it does, the first injury it inflicts is it plucks out the eyes of the dead body. And he said in the same respect, the first injury that impurity inflicts upon the soul is to take away the light of the things of God, which includes our vocation. And so as we grow in purity and heart, which is a battle, um, God gives us greater clarity of heart to see the plan he has for us. That's why I think the devil is so desperate to get our vision of God clouded through impurity, because then it's like I it can't see the things of God. And so if you're struggling with your vocation, take a look at the chastity thing. How, how's it going? You know, are, are we making progress in that area? If not, find a good spiritual director. Find one confessor that you can stick with. And keep going to make progress in that area. And it's not a promise that, hey, you know, once, you know, you've gotten that stuff in the rearview mirror, your discernment is going to be clear. Understand that sometimes, as weird as the sound, sometimes it's God's will for you not to know His will. And that stings sometimes because it's like, well, God, uh, no, like if I get really holy, then I'm going to know what's around the corner. But He says, no, just walk with me. Walk with me in this fog because I'm not in tomorrow. I'm not and yesterday. The only place you find sanctity is in the present moment. And so just find peace in the fact that if He wanted you to know His will, and you're living in grace, He, he would reveal it to you. And so just be patient for His timing with the revelation of the calling. As long as your heart is disposed towards Him, you're living in the divine will. Pogo, Great, Paul okay. Thank you, brother.
0: Nathaniel Bradley! Bradley. You. It's good to have you. Who are you? Where are you from?
10: So I'm from Tasmania. Um, I've just graduated high school and uh, next year I'll actually be moving up to Sydney for Campion College, which will be good awesome. fun. Today. Good for you. Yeah. In Tasmania, though, I, um, I work at a go-kart centre. One of the only ones there. It's good fun. Is it a fun go-kart place or it's is a, it more for kids? It's proper go-kart. Yeah. going like 80k an hour down back straights. It's good.
0: It's amazing. And... Uh, Again, the awkward... What do you want to talk about? I don't well. know. What, how else? How would you do it? You're not a very awkward person. I feel like you could do it much better. How would you say, what is the topic you want to discuss?
10: I think you're doing
1: a fantastic right. job, Matt. So.
10: Well, I go to a... Um, I've just graduated from a non-denominational uh, school, but it's, it's just Protestants, essentially. Um, and so through those years, I've gained a lot of Protestant friends. And you do meet... like There's obviously the ones who are just... Like, you've got the prosperity gospel, that kind of stuff. They're not really into the real truth and actually trying to find the truth. But they do find some who are, like, genuinely looking and they are genuinely convinced of Protestantism. But how can we bring them into full communion with the church? Because I, I, I find it that always, it's always the Protestant converts into Catholicism. They're, like, the most hardcore, like, crazy, great Catholics. I was wondering, how can we get more of them into the church? Well,
0: first of all, who were the fellas who told me they love Scott Hahn? Are they here? All right. So these fellas came up and they're like, do you have Scott Hahn's number? I'm like, yes, but I'm not giving it to you, you weirdo. And um, they were saying how much they love him. So they sent a little video. I want you to know he sent back a love heart in response to you saying that speaking of Protestant converts, I uh, think that, um, you know, nobody likes to be a project. And uh, we always know when someone's making us one. When the Mormon missionaries knock on your door, you know what they want. They want to fix something about you that they think is broken. And, and so it doesn't make for a great introduction. But I've found lately when I talk to my Protestant brothers and sisters that I'm just sort of a lot more transparent than I used to be. Like I'm not trying to be all, uh, what do you say, kind of like, Uh, I don't know the word, Uh, secretive about the fact that I want to convert them. But instead, I'm like, yes, yes, of course, I think you should become Catholic. But if you think Catholicism is false, that makes sense why you wouldn't want to be Catholic. So, like, what... So I just like having more of an open conversation. Like, I'm not trying to treat them like a project. Like, many of you might be familiar with my mate, Cameron Matuzzi, who has that channel... uh, capturing Christianity. And it was like that with him. It's like, yes, of course, of course, yes, of course you to become Catholic. Um, and I just feel like being open about it is a lot more helpful than being secretive about it. And then a question I like to ask a Protestant who I have a relationship with is, what is the biggest obstacle to Catholicism? Because Protestants have many objections often to Catholicism, and sometimes they'll throw them all at you at once. But if you say, well, okay, yeah, fair enough, understood, but what's the biggest one? And they might say, well, I don't think that you can find real belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist in the church fathers, or I don't think you should pray to dead people, or something like that. Okay, that's the biggest objection? Yes, okay. If that could be answered, what would that do for you? Well, I still have a ton of other objections. Right, but wouldn't that show you that if this could be answered, those other lesser ones you have might be able to be answered as well? I suppose so. All right. And that kind of gives you some direction about where to go, you know, uh, maybe to focus on that one topic. Uh, so that's
10: something I would say. It's so funny you say that, like, ask the one biggest thing that's wrong with him. Um, my studies of religion teacher at school. He's a great guy. He's, he's, he's not the kind of guy who's just like, I'm a Protestant, don't care what Catholics teach. Um, but when we were doing our studies of religion course, we get to look at a um, historical challenge within the religion. And we looked at the Reformation, which is interesting for me, being the only Catholic in the classroom, bunch of uh, Presbyterians, especially. Um, I was very lucky, happy that the, um, the Irish fellow wasn't there. Um, he was, he's full on that guy. But um, I asked my studies of religion teacher that same uh, question. And yeah, he, he said, um, it was more a, a ecclesiological kind of thing. Like the bishops and especially the pope, the bishop of Rome, and like how that can all, how that all stems from Christ and how you can trace it all back. But it's, I think, what you were saying before, especially like this, um, getting a relationship with them, because it's a bit of a,
0: but not in a transact, not in a kind of way where you're still trying to get something from. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, seeing them as the person. Yeah, where it's like with Cameron Bertuzzi, I was like, I love you. Like, I think you're really lovely and I enjoy you. And if you never became Catholic, like, I would still want to yeah. be your friend.
1: Yeah. I think out yeah. of
0: that context, that's usually the most helpful.
1: Yeah, St. John Paul II once said, he said, God uses human friendships to lead hearts to the source of divine charity. And so the, the friendship needs to be an end in itself, you know, because the purpose of friendship is the mutual perfection of the other. And so if you've got that friendship with him, uh, I, th- I love the question I'm at, like, what's the big thing So you, The first step is actually listening, because you might think, okay, I got to prove to him, you know, biblical evidence for the papacy out of Matthew, like, you're thinking of that and he's like, no, actually, my dad was a Catholic and an alcoholic and he treated my mom like garbage. Okay, well, this is okay. This is not just biblical evidence stuff. There's some deeper stuff going on here. Oh, I was mistreated. I used to be Catholic because of this and that. So our first posture needs to be actually listening, because they say nothing is less important than the answer to a question nobody is asking. And so, listen, see where he's coming from, and then you'll have a better idea of okay, pastorally, there's some real sensitivities here. Maybe I need to apologize on behalf of the Catholic Church. For the suffering that he's gone through. Maybe an apology would be much more effective to him at that moment than an apologist. And so, to, to listen, to see where he's coming from. And then let's say you do engage in some apologetic conversations, and let's say he throws some stumpers at you. Don't give lame answers. Have the humility to say, that's a Really good question. Honestly, I'm not positive how to answer it. So I don't want to give you a half-baked answer. Give me 48 hours. I'm going to find it. Then you go get the homework. And, and that, that humility goes a long way instead of giving him answers that don't even convince you. That and so in the process, so you learn so much though. Yeah. Because the, I, I don't know the best conversation I've had. Like I, sometimes I'll talk to teens and they'll ha- ask me some difficult relationship questions. You know, I, I give my best advice and, and then I go on and I start, I really start thinking, what could I have said? Oh, I should have said that. This would have helped so much more. And then the next time I have a similar conversation, that's right there, ready for me to give. And so, same thing in these apologetic conversations. Listen, get stumped, and then go to places like Catholic.com, learn the apologetics, and then you're going to be able to fall in love more with your faith. And I think as he sees that love and those sound arguments, he's more likely to, you know, want to come home to the church. So. Eh? I, I don't know the scripture verse because I'm
0: not a Protestant, but there's that one line where it says it says something like I. Planted or Barnabas planted, I watered, God gave the growth, something like that. And I like that idea because we can't convert anybody. Like that's actually not within your power. You can answer questions to the best of your ability, you can love people, you can be a witness to the Catholic faith, but it's actually the Holy Spirit who converts. Um,
1: so that kind of takes the pressure off. Like, you can't actually do it anyway.
0: Like, oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah and that's we always cool. want
1: to be the one that, that brings the fish in the boat, so yeah. to speak. But I remember once I was uh, driving up in the mountains in Colorado, and we passed on the road a, like a beef jerky stand on the side of the road. Some guy selling beef jerky out of his truck. You know, and my wife wouldn't touch that stuff in a million years. I mean, not past the health board inspection or anything, but that's the good jerky. And so I drive past one, and I'm like, Oh, it looks pretty good. And then you drive past another, and I'm like, wow, oh, that looks really good. And then you get to the third, I'm pulling over this one. And the first two thought they played no role, but each of them brought me one lane closer to the destination. And so understand, you might be the first, you might be the last. And so if you're the last, don't think you can take all the credit. If you're the first, don't think that you're a failure. You know, you're, you're at some point in that person's journey, so. What advice would you offer to those who are trying to convert their
0: what have you found helpful? in?
10: I think, I think you can get a lot of, like sometimes you can get like the polemic kind of thing, like, "Oh, you're just a Protestant. You don't know what you're talking about. You're being stupid. You don't have two thousand years of teaching." But it's th- they're not stupid. Like I can find myself a lot more stupid than other Protestants a lot of the time. But it's like what, how you were saying, Jason. It's like there's often a lot of a there's something else going on. It's not just a purely intellectual um, problem with it. Sometimes you've got to like dig a bit deeper, and it's like you were saying, the relationship with them actually not just saying you're a project, I just want you to become Catholic, or I just want you to be the project that I can fulfil, but saying your soul's worthy of what I have to share with you. And I think that relationship is what isn't around a lot, because we sort of get the whole, it's like us and them, we can't mingle together like that. But like, even myself being in a Protestant school, I've, I've got, like, I've, I've had a lot more formation in... A Protestant school than I have in many Catholic schools, and even from my Protestant teachers. So I think, yeah, just foster the relationship is the biggest. It's like it's just it's the step one, I'd say, and prayer, obviously.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. It's great to have you, and nice. thanks for your advice. All right, our final guest is Joe Hoffman. Let's I'm, today I'm going to make Jason make you. You do it now. You. you I want to see. What's that? You, I want to see how you do it.
11: What's your problem?
0: Oh. <laughs> like John it. it's wonderful to have you
11: here. I love your shoes. Thank you. Thank you. I saw you had some on yourself. Yes. Yeah, you've gone with the suede, though. So. You look good too. I like the jacket. Thank yeah, you. I've gone nice. with the RMs and the miraculous metal, so I could kind of
0: miraculous. halfway between the yeah. two.
11: Um,
0: Where are you from? And-
11: I am, uh, I'm born and bred Sydney, grew up in Penrith, Um, I uh, grew up in the Servants of Jesus community, it's a charismatic ecumenical community. I study at the University of Sydney and I'm one of the eight uh, guys that had the privilege of living in Sumner House this year, which is a uh, Sydney Archdiocese uh, house for guys discerning God's vocation for them, so,
8: I'm also a massive
11: fan. Jason, I've read uh, Pure Manhood probably a thousand times. There was just copies of it littered all around my school uh, for as long as I can remember. And um, if you really loved me, I've read that book a couple of times as well. It's amazing. Um, And uh, Matt, you're cool too, as well. Um, no, but I will, I will say, I think we all appreciate that you're in the states and you're, you're like representing, like you know, authentic Australia with your RMs and your Tim Tams and you know everything except the actual uh, living in Australia part. Yeah. yeah. Was Jason at your
0: school? Is that how you got all the books, or did someone just take the books to? I'd
11: say uh, to para ed school. It's called Wallamai College, and you came to speak at a school called Redfield College, and we got to see you when I was about in Year Eight. And I remember you had this uh, thing where you picked up this guy and you walked to the edge of the stage yeah. about talking about how far should you go, how close Classic. to the line should you go. Yeah. Never forgot it, it was great. And you I, got him to wear a wig, it was great. Yeah, how, yeah. how many men have you picked up, would about, you say? About 3,000.
1: <laughs> really? Is that, is that
11: how you hit the deadlifting record? Yeah, no, for the... no. my biggest yeah.
1: guy I ever picked up was 385 pounds. So that was my record so far. So, but, yeah, I probably picked up about 3,000 guys. I did two already That's today, crazy. so 3,002 or whatever. Wow. So. All right, what do you want to talk about?
11: So uh, I'm one of four I have uh, three sisters And um, growing up One of them's here tonight Uh, Growing up I think my You could say my um, Conflict resolution skills Had to rapidly progress Um, And then I thought I was pretty good At this conflict resolution thing Got to university uh, Got involved in the pro-life movement And uh, all of a sudden realised That I'm terrible at it Um, Because I live in a beautiful bubble Which is a great thing to live in But it's a bit of an echo chamber where my beliefs, my... And from a pro-life perspective, I'm I'm coming in this question. My beliefs, my thoughts, I'm very passionate about this issue, but I'm coming into contact with people, and it feels like I have my iceberg over here. And at the top, above the water, is I'm saying I'm pro-life. I'm trying to engage in discussion. But underneath that is my worldview, my feelings, my experiences, my thoughts. And I'm coming up against someone else, and at the top of their iceberg, they have, I'm pro-choice, you know, I care about women's rights, and you hate women's rights, and... I'm, I'm trying to have these conversations with them, but I'm, I'm getting nowhere. They're getting emotional, um, and I feel like I'm not able to break because they, underneath their iceberg, have their thoughts, feelings, emotions, worldview. Um, hot tips and tricks on trying to have really hard, important conversations, but not falling off that line between truth and love i don't want to fall too far to love and forget truth because truth will set you free and without truth it's not love but i don't want to fall too far into the camp of only truth and the person that i love is standing in front of me christ child treating it like a stephen crowder debate so how do you care about the person and the facts
0: well you know i I don't know if you've ever done this jason but sometimes when my wife and i will get into an argument um we've done it once um, but if it's like if it's not going anywhere I'll, I think I've done this a few times like okay how about you tell me what I'm trying to say okay and then I'll tell you what I think you're trying to say you know and so it's a way of like I feel like you're not hearing me is basically the point right and so she'll say it and I might be like no that's that's not what I'm saying and maybe it's my fault so I have to rearticulate articulate it um, and I again I imagine that a that kind of tactic would only happen if both of you feel safe enough to engage in an kind of adversary conversation, adversarial conversation, where you can say, okay, so you, you're saying that you, yeah, you love women, you feel like women are oppressed, and in order for them to be free, uh, they need reproductive rights so that they can achieve those things uh, in a sort of uninhibited way so that they can be maybe on the same plane as men. Is that is that what you mean or is that not it? Oh, that's not it. Okay, so help me understand, you know. I just feel like if someone seriously tried to take my worldview seriously, uh, I would feel honored by that. And they weren't just trying to straw man my position. So I wonder if that could be a, a, a tactic, but also a way to really try to understand where people are coming from. Because most people, I think it's fair to say, don't believe, don't hold to things they know are in direct defiance of truth. I think most of us believe things, we may not have great reasons to believe them, but we have some reasons, and we can, so we can usually sympathize where people are coming from. Okay, yeah, I can see why you might think that. And, and, and I wonder if in a, in a meeting with somebody, if you just in your mind decided, I'm not even going to put forth my opinion, unless I feel morally obligated to, but in this conversation, all I'm going to do is just try to understand where they're coming from and see if I can say that back to them in a way that they're like, yes, yes. You go, Okay, cool. Thank you for explaining that to me. I think when we feel heard, we're a lot more open to hearing.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I did a talk you know, last night on gender, and that's obviously a very similar volatile issue with very polar viewpoints. And uh, people often ask me, okay, if I get an opportunity to talk to someone like that, what's the one thing I should say? Like, what's that silver bullet that I can kind of shoot at them? That's going. I said, okay, what you want me to do is, I want you to have a conversation with them, so that when they walk away from you, they feel, wow, that person really listened to me. I felt heard by the church, perhaps for the first time in my life. That we so often think of terms of okay what's that thing i gotta say what's that perfect argument that line of reasoning that's going to get them to make that u-turn when many times it's the experience of being perplexed of wait a minute i've always thought that like those you know catholic you know transphobic people just hated me but like that person actually cared what I had to say. Like Matt said, that reflexive listening, that we're actually bouncing back to them what they just said. And so you don't need to win the argument by the end of the day. If you can get them to walk away feeling the church has ears and they actually care what I have to say and I have someone actually listening to me, they're so much more likely to come back to you and have that conversation, to go a little bit deeper. Because in the end, you could argue with someone who's pro-choice till they're blue in the face and feel like I just got nowhere and just be done with that. Like, man, I was like half hour of just arguing, and I'm just agitated, and I feel like neither one of us budged an inch. But understand, sometimes people can put up walls so high, you have to go up to heaven to get over it. And what that means is prayer, fasting, intercession. And we're also focused on do, do, do. How do I break down that wall? You might not be able to, but you can make it rain on the other side with some intercession that might bear fruit with healing in a month or a year or two from now. And so just make sure, yeah, I've had these conversations and they just feel so agitating and frustrated because you're like, why can't they see the truth and it's so clear and we just got nowhere. Um, Try to just invest a little bit more time making them feel heard. And I think a lot of times that can go a long way to open hearts. Like two nights ago, I don't know if the fellas here now, you can go, woo, if you were.
0: Well, oh, ah, yeah. no, you don't know yet, so yeah. stop it. Uh, he came up He's to me. He's an RCIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> delayed reaction. Yeah. Um, this guy came up to me and he said, hey, you, you, don't know, you don't know me, but I came to your talk in Brisbane a couple of years ago. And I was an atheist and I, was, I had my hand up and I was kind of objecting to some of the things you were saying. And I just want you to know that like, I'm a Catholic now. And it wasn't because of the brilliant things i said i'd like to think it was but i don't think it was but but to your point that i really don't know i really don't know it might seem like there's no way this person will ever change their mind like this fella but like let's say i was a jerk to this guy um and then he changed his mind it's like i don't want to be like that like i would much rather him say to me you were really kind to me even though i was kind of being aggressive you know and so i want to yeah yeah what do you think
11: yeah well i think um it would be nice i kind of probably was expecting more of a silver bullet answer than the, um, yeah. the listen, but it would be nice to have a silver bullet. I used to, before doing pro-life events on campus, I used to watch like three hours of like Ben Shapiro and like <laughs> like um, uh, apologetics the night before, just to like really be brushed up. Um, and I, But I think you're absolutely right, I think, uh, what, Probably the next thing I'd say, sorry. There's a real quick statement. Yeah. Jimmy Aiken once
0: told me, I love it. He says, he who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. In other words, you can argue someone and show them why they're wrong and maybe they'll have to kind of give in. But if they really haven't,
1: Uh, If if they just feel bludgeoned, Mm. then they're not going to change their mind. Mm. And a lot of these things, especially on the pro-life thing, they can be so deeply personal and sensitive. I mean, you could be having a debate with somebody and what you don't know is that that person was actually sexually sexually abused when she was 16 and she actually got pregnant. And, uh, and she did have an abortion yeah. and uh, her life would have been very different if she had that baby and, and she feels like if she were to have had that child, it would have been like almost endorsing the rape and, let, and the, the wounds, the depth that you're dealing with and you're thinking, okay, what's the silver bullet argument? Yeah. It's just like this person just needs tenderness and love and understanding and she's not going to be mm-hmm. vulnerable enough with me to disclose the full story of, of what she's been through. I remember being at the March for Life in Canada and we were just marching down the street after the talk and there was a woman standing in the street corner howling and screaming at the protesters from the depths of her being and it was like a sound like I'd never heard before and it was just like it's very clearly a post-abortive woman just mm. crying out from the depths of her soul with these wounds and just throwing the anger that she couldn't process towards herself or to maybe what someone had done to her and so she just projected that onto the pro-lifers and so we could be dealing with so much more than just give me a really good pro-life argument and i'm going to join the camp
11: yeah yeah 100 percent i would say that especially in these pro-life discussions between love and truth like if you had to pick one probably lean towards love especially Mm -hmm. because of that and i I think i realized that maybe i was going into it with the objective of i would debating in high school like this is going to be fun you know Um, and i don't think i think if you're enjoying it maybe doing it slightly wrong it should be Mm -hmm. A, it should be a, like a chore to to really try and get into that compassionate mindset when you're talking yeah. to these people. Yeah, um, yeah and, I think uh,
0: what you mean, though, is it's not love and truth that you want to put in opposition. I think what you mean is like truth and politeness, right? Because mm. love without truth isn't love. Yeah. And and truth without love is just harshness or something. It's yeah. Yeah. Love and truth have to always go together. But uh, maybe what you mean is, you know...
1: I want to say the truth even if it's impolite and that mm. I think there is some virtue in that but Yeah and and honestly I think we have enough culture warriors right now that are very intelligent that can articulate things very well but have no clue how to listen. I think we've got enough of those.
11: Just the uh, speakers not listeners? are <laughs> no, no, you talking about? No that's
1: no that. no I mean but, it, but it's it's just you it just that's why God gave us twice as many ears as mouths. So
11: Thanks brother.
9: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>